0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com.
1: I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Quick warning for listeners, we will be discussing gun violence and some of the effects of gun violence in this conversation. In two months' time, our city will mark one year since the tragic shooting at the Covenant School. The effects of the shooting and the political repercussions are still being felt throughout the city and the state. It was a reminder that Nashville had seen a deadly mass shooting before, in 2018, when Travis Ryan King shot and killed four people at a Waffle House in Antioch. Dr. Jonathan Metzl, a psychiatrist and professor at Vanderbilt, had spent 15 years of his career studying gun violence and has looked into what happened at the Waffle House in Antioch on April 22, 2018. He's written a new book, What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. It's set for release on January 30th. We'd like to hear what Dr. Metzl discovered while researching for his book. He joins me now to discuss. I'd like to welcome Dr. Jonathan Metzl to This is Nashville. Dr. Metzl, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. Okay, so you've got quite the title at Vanderbilt. You're a professor of sociology and medicine, health, and society, the director of the Department of Medicine, Health, and Society, and a professor of psychology at Vanderbilt. Let me ask you this. How did you get into studying gun violence?
0: Well, it, it is almost similar to what happened after the Waffle House shooting, which is I have joint expertise. I, I study race and violence and mental illness, basically. And so I had had spent a long career before I got into guns, studying stereotypes of people with mental illness as being unduly violent, or was that a stereotype? Was that based in race or, or bias? And, and really what happened was that this kind of this topic really kind of came to me after every mass shooting, I would get a call and uh, even long before the Waffle House and people would say, gosh, we've just had a mass shooting by someone who seems like they're not all there. Did mental illness cause their cause them to commit their shooting? And so long before the Waffle House, I had probably done, as I write in the book, thousands of interviews after mass shootings, trying to explain to people that mental illness is often a part of mass shootings, but mental illness really never causes anybody to act in any particular way. And and that really led me up to the Waffle House, where those issues were really kind of um, very front and center.
1: Mm. May, may I ask, what are your personal positions on guns and gun ownership in the state and the country at large?
0: Sure. Well, I I grew up in Missouri. My dad was in the Air Force. I've been around. I mean, you grew up in Missouri. It's kind of similar to Tennessee. You uh, have a lot of people around you who own guns, who have you know, go hunting or have family tradition of owning guns. So it's not like guns were any kind of foreign thing to me. Um, but I I had seen in my own kind of growing up experience that I, for me, to be honest, the, the kind of negative effects of what happened, not so much about guns and gun rights, but when you just kind of open the floodgates and let anybody and everybody carry a gun. Mm. And so in the Kansas City that I grew up in, again, there were long traditions of gun ownership. But when they started just flooding the area with guns, overturning even the most basic gun laws. It led not only to more shootings, that was, uh Statistically, what what I've shown in my research, but it also led to increasing uh, mistrust, segregation, feeling like certain parts of the city were dangerous and others weren't. Uh, everyday disputes getting resolved with uh, you know gunfire, increasing rates of gun suicide, accidental shootings, partner shootings, you name it. And so, I am certainly not somebody who's anti-gun um, or. Guns don't seem that strange to me, but I, I do think that my experience as a scholar, but also just of my personal experience, led me to mistrust what happens to society when you start to see people kind of resolve everyday issues with firearms.
1: Mm. Now, Kate, now, can you walk us through, this may be traumatic for some listeners, but can you walk us briefly through the events of what happened at the Waffle House shooting in 2018?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's you can't really... Tell this story enough. It's something that's important to keep in our in our minds because mass shootings happen so frequently that it, it you know it's 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 almost like a human response to habituate them and move on. But I, I do think that it really was a moment of trauma and crisis for our city. Um, a, a troubled young man, Travis ranking had traveled um, from uh, Illinois across state border to Tennessee. Had lived in in Tennessee and Nashville in an apartment for a while. And this was somebody who had had a history of run-ins with the police, with the FBI. He had gone to um, the White House and tried to cross into the grounds and they, and they had an FBI file on him and all these things. So this is really somebody who shouldn't have had a gun. And why did he, he actually had four guns. Why did he have guns? Well, a couple of reasons I, I talk about in the book. One was that I think it was a big mistake. his The, uh, the police in, in, in Illinois, where he was from, didn't confiscate his guns. They gave his guns back to his father, who kept them in a safe, um, and then gave them back to his son. And the other aspect of this was that Reinking himself talks about this in the materials I talk about. He then traveled to Tennessee because Tennessee had looser gun laws. And when he crossed state lines, he would be able to carry his guns without, without any problem. So he came to Tennessee and then um, in April of uh, of 2018, in the, about two, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, he drove to uh, a newly opened Waffle House that was full of just young adults who were enjoying a night out um, uh, after the clubs closed or celebrating, uh, celebrating different events, walked in pretty much naked from the waist down. He had a green coat on and an AR-15 and opened fire outside um, outside the, the Waffle House and then walked in. And he ended up killing four incredible young people and you know, severely injuring four more and traumatized really our, our entire city and our entire community.
1: Now, he was convicted of all 16 counts that he was tried for, but you write that there's a 17th count that wasn't even brought to trial tell us what was this 17th count and why does well, it matter
0: it's for me that was kind of the core of the book uh is that um after the after the just cold-blooded murder what he did a mass shooting um it was clear that he had committed homicide uh he, it was clear that he had murdered other people uh, initially he was also convicted of a gun crime and so the 16 counts of, of homicide he was convicted he's going to spend the rest of his life in in prison Um, and I write a lot about the trials in the book but there was also a gun crime because this is also someone who shouldn't have had a gun Uh, his guns had been technically confiscated by the FBI and by the local police and he transported four semi-automatic weapons from from Illinois uh, to Tennessee. And so part of the story for the book was that even though uh, at the at the court, it felt like in some ways justice was done. I mean, justice is never really done when you lose incredible people. Um, but in, he was convicted, at, they said of all counts. But when I started kind of looking back into the case, what I found was that this 17th count a firearms count had been dropped. And why was it dropped? It was dropped because in 2018, when the shooting happened, he had illegally transported a firearm. But by the time the case went to trial several years later, it was delayed because of the pandemic and because of our legal system. By the time he went to trial a couple of years later, that wasn't really a crime anymore. It wasn't mm-hmm. a crime for someone, uh, particularly someone who looked like Travis Ranking to ride around town with a bunch of weapons. Uh, and really, uh, in a way, because our gun laws had become so loose, um, they just dropped the count. Now, again, it wouldn't have mattered. He was going to go to jail anyway for the rest of his life. But what I, what I write about in the book is that um, we really can't convict people of gun law, of gun crimes, if we don't have these kind of laws on the book. And it opens the door for a lot of different kinds of shootings. I talk about other cases. Uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse case is probably the most obvious. Clearly someone who committed uh, a gun crime. He was 17. He crossed state lo- straight lines. Um, but that case was dropped. And I talk about other cases where, because these gun laws are getting so loose, some people might see that as a kind of Welcome development because of freedom and liberty to carry guns, but it sure makes it harder to stop people who are intent on committing mass murder. The way ranking was, and so really for me, that 17th count was a really important, a really important point in the narrative, because we 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 condemn the man, but we in a way free the gun from judgment, is mm. what I argue.
1: You know, in your book, you kind of go back and forth between the realities of the situation and the, this travesty that has happened. But you also talk about, you know, a little bit more of the practical nature of how we study guns and the databases that we did have or we didn't have. Tell me this, like what data and databases are we lacking when it comes to understanding how gun ownership can be tracked and or studied?
0: Well, I'm I'm a scholar of race. The book I wrote before this was called Dying of Whiteness. It looked at gun suicide in southern Missouri. Uh, Before that, I wrote a book called The Protest Psychosis that looked at race and diagnosis. And so that's kind of the way I study the world and I I see the world is trying to understand kind of how we can understand racial tensions and and improve on them for for a better society. But I can also say that ranking was someone who, because he was a 20-something-year-old white man with a gun, was afforded different kinds of liberties uh, in a way because he was a white male gun owner who was walking around um, with guns or seen. I mean, people saw him as a threat. But what I write is that if this guy was a, a 20-something-year-old black man who was doing what what ranking was doing before the shooting, there never would have been a Waffle House shooting because he would have been uh, in jail. And I can say that for other shootings, uh, the Covenant shooting and other things. And so, in a way, part of the issue is what does it mean to be a gun owner? Who do we see as a patriot and who do we see as a potential criminal and how do how, what's the really the rhetoric of of gun ownership of gun carry we we know that we've had massive massive liberalization of of gun carry rights in Tennessee and elsewhere and what i write is that my, I'm a doctor and, and my profession of public health and medicine, we study what happens when you shoot guns. So we can now track gun-related injuries and deaths and look at data and what kind of laws lead to what kind of shootings. In a way, our whole expertise uh, looks at what happens after guns are fired. Um, but we have very little knowledge of what happens before that. And in a way, it's made it, I, to my read, much easier to pass these open carry laws and open carry of different kind of guns and different ages and, and things like that. And there's been very little pushback. And so what I argue in the book is among other gaps in our knowledge. We really need a narrative of what does it mean to be a healthy or responsible gun owner. And I found the answers in my own profession of public health to be very unsatisfying. A a responsible gun owner can't just be somebody who agrees with public health. And so in a way, I really think it's kind of the before the shooting meeting and how those meanings intersect with other tensions of race and gender in our society.
1: You know, in your book, you describe conversations with gun owners who come from very different political, racial, ethnic and economic backgrounds, you know, and the what to me, it seemed like the overwhelming majority of people that you talk to are not really open to being on any sort of government database. And it kind of pits individual welfare against the public or collective interest in safety. Talk to me a little bit more about that dynamic and how it complicates any discussions we have on gun violence.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean... No, I'll just say first of all that it's an uphill battle to even be a gun safety researcher like myself or so many other incredible people who are out there. So it's it's not an easy task, right? Because you're going against history, against the legal system, very often, against a very well-funded uh, adversary. Um, and so I, I I'm not saying like oh if we just did this one thing, it's hard to get things done. Um, but but I will also say that part of that story of kind of I mean if you think about it like all of these open carry laws that have passed everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And and really, I think we've lost the argument. I mean, the argument of my public health side is basically that guns are health risks, the way cigarettes are health risks uh, or um, seatbelts, faulty seatbelts are health risks. We kind of coded guns the same way about 30 years ago when the modern gun debate started. And I really feel like we've lost that argument in many ways because increasing numbers of people see guns as a means of their own self-protection. And that's certainly true of conservative white gunners, but it's true of many other groups. I mean, the biggest Uh, The fastest growing groups of gun owners are uh, black women right now and and other groups who weren't weren't traditionally gun owners. And so we lost, first of all, the debate about um, what it means to own a gun. And the reason I say that is because if you look at popular opinion polls from 30 years ago, People never thought of guns as individual protection. They thought, I need to have this for hunting. Maybe 20% of people would say, I need it for protection. And now 90% of people who own guns say that they need it to protect themselves from somebody else. And the minute that becomes the reason that people own and carry guns, um, it just leads to these dramatic expansions. Because it's like, oh man, if that other guy has a gun, I need a gun also. Yeah. So the narrative around guns is one that really has lost, we've lost the health argument, I think, around that. Uh, around that. And the other part of that for a lot of people is about regulation. I I, I certainly think we need stronger gun laws. I'm for stronger gun laws. I think we need national gun laws. But I also, in all the interviews I do in the book, many of which I recount in in, in the pages uh, of the book, People said, look, I'm, I'm for gun safety, but if you ask me to do a background check, that means entering my name into a government database or red flag laws, which I think are important and vital. But people, people who are against red flag laws, maybe they just don't want any regulation, but a red flag law involves empowering the police or empowering a judge to really kind of assess someone who might be a a danger. And so people who are in any case prone to mistrusting the government and people who already see their guns as their own protection get very nervous about this. And so part of what I argue in the book toward the end is that we really need to change our approach because I think we learned from the pandemic that increasing increasing kind of government regulation. It maybe made sense in the cigarette era of a couple decades ago, but it's a much harder sell here in a place like Tennessee um, where people in any case are, are, are wary of that kind of intervention.
1: All right, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Metzl about his book and how we can truly address gun violence in our country. This is Nashville, we'll be right back. This is Nashville. My guest is Vanderbilt professor Dr. Jonathan Metzl, the author of the soon-to-be-released book, What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. In the book, Dr. Metzl reviews the events that took place in the 2018 Waffle House shooting in Antioch. Before the break, we were discussing what his research discovered and how he came to study gun violence. Now let's continue our talk and learn what he thinks is the best path forward. Quick warning for listeners, we will be discussing gun violence and some of the effects of gun violence in this conversation. Dr. Metzel, again, thanks so much for being here. Sure, it's my honor. Okay, so I, I, have the, I do have this question for you. You know, you were talking about how the perception over the past 30 years in the modern gun argument, you were talking about how the perception of gun ownership has changed from a, a thing that was purely for sport or hunting to something that became a matter of personal protection. I'm interested in what the media, movies, TV shows, entertainment, and even the news, what role they play in this. If we take examples, something like the John Wick franchise starring Keanu Reeves, a very popular movie, they've gone on to version number four, but just in simply watching the trailer, he's shooting it well. He may be shooting at bad guys, but he's still shooting guns, and I can watch this commercial in the middle of a day during a football game. Should we be having a greater conversation about the vast exposure to violence, gun violence, in our media and entertainment
0: you know it's a it's a harder question than it seems i certainly think that media is an important part of this conversation how we glorify gun violence um how we glorify guns and also our coverage of shootings which shootings get covered which shootings don't get covered but but i also feel like for me um the media is often an easy scapegoat. And so I don't think that that we can kind of fall into this trap of saying, if we just cleaned up shooting in the media, that wouldn't glorify it and things would get better. And for me, ultimately, what I write in the book is that it it comes down to gun laws and it comes down to judges and it comes down to elected officials, that the media is much more a reflection of our values than it is a a causal agent in many ways. And, And part of why I say that is that after every mass shooting, including, including the Waffle House mass shooting, people would say, oh, did media glorify this? Did, did, uh, did video games, violent video games uh, cause this? And certainly there are a lot of shootings in, in movies and there are a lot of shootings in video games. But if you just did a fraction and the, denominator was the number of people who watch those movies or uh, play those video games. And the numerator was the people who go on to fire a gun against someone else. It's like one over a zillion. It's it's really, the numbers are so small. And so the idea that somebody is going to causally play a video game and then go, go shoot somebody. Now it's a little bit more complicated, right? Because some video games have Sponsorship deals with with gun manufacturers, it's not like a totally neutral reflection. But I would say, again, that the media is an important part of this, but it's not going to matter if we don't you know, if we don't have better laws, if we don't have judges that are overturning even the most basic safety restrictions. Mm. And so, again, I think the media, it's, it's, it's a great part of the conversation, but I don't think it's a causal narrative.
1: In talking about gun laws, having proper and stronger gun laws, when you talk about gun violence, the political right, it kind of brings up Chicago. The city of Chicago is proof that really tight gun laws don't work. What, what's the nuance missing from that example?
0: please read my book i take this apart <laughs> point by point um because the shooter in the waffle house shooting was coming from illinois um he was not coming from chicago he was coming from rural uh, much wider suburban uh, part part of illinois um and so i talk a lot about chicago and how it becomes a kind of straw man for people who want to say gun laws never work Now, the problem, as I write about at length in the book, is, first of all, that Chicago had really good gun laws about 30 or 40 years ago. And part of the reason Chicago's gun laws are ineffective, on one hand, is because they've been just every year or so watered down by different conservative lawmakers who make loopholes the size of you know you could drive trucks through them but also in chicago you can just drive 20 minutes down the indiana toll road to indiana or drive to wisconsin where a lot of guns come from and load up your minivan with with weapons and drive right back to chicago and so Part of the reason that Chicago's gun laws are not as effective as they should be is because of just the loopholes that are in there. In other words, if we had Chicago's gun laws for the entire nation, then you would see dramatic falls in gun violence. But that's not the case. You can't control the borders of Chicago. Um, And the other part, of course, is that it's based in a particular racial stereotype of kind of the lawless, urban black area. So this idea of kind of Chicago as being a free for all, it's, I mean, let me just be clear. There's way too much gun violence in our whole country, including in Chicago, but it is used as a kind of anxiety causing mechanism to say, well, gosh, we should never have gun laws because these unruly scary black people are going to get guns. And in my last book, I showed that two thirds of all gun death in this country is actually gun suicide. And the vast majority of that is is white uh, gun owners. And so it is based in a particular stereotype. Again, let me be clear. I think Chicago should be safer, like I think all of our cities should be safer. Um, but this is also based in a—this th- is a very useful stereotype for for people to make.
1: Yeah, and and there's a stereotype that's often run out over and over again during campaign and election season as well. Correct. Um you know tell me tell me about the differences different policies in red or blue states and the data you found about the implication of that with the, with these laws that we need to have um let's just say improved
0: yeah i make two arguments in the book i mean certainly you can say that there are fewer it's no mystery i mean if if we really wanted to stop gun related injury and death we would just look at places that <laughs> that have less injury and death than than we do in in so red states could easily look to blue states and there's a fair bit of data that shows that many different kinds of shootings are far lower in places where there are reasonable regulations around gun ownership and carry um and and that's true for example comparing Tennessee to a place like New York, for example, which I write about. New York is not just a place with relatively tight gun laws, but it's also a state that's surrounded by other states with tight gun laws. And so on a kind of aggregate level, there are fewer gun homicides. There are fewer uh, mass shootings. There are fewer gun suicides. And the other part is that when states loosen their gun laws, those kind of shootings go up. And so I saw that in Missouri where when they basically made a effectively a constitutional carry state, all kinds of shootings went up, including gun suicides. The hard part is kind of similar to the Chicago question, which is it's very easy to drive a truck full of guns pretty much from from Tennessee to New York. I mean, it's not like we have patrols at the borders. And the other important part here is that because of the 2022 Bruin case in the Supreme Court, it's harder for a place like New York to actually regulate guns in the way it used to because the Supreme Court, in in effect took the bad gun laws from Tennessee and is now enforcing them in in New York in a way, saying that the city of New York can't regulate its own, its own public carry policies. And so in a way, what I argue is not, oh my gosh, Tennessee has to do what New York does. I'm very clear, I don't think that's gonna work here. But I do think we need to have much more open conversations about civic safety and really think about ways that we can make communities safer with different kinds of community investments. And so at the end of the book, I don't I don't say, oh, my God, we need New York's gun laws in Tennessee. I say we need to invest more in community infrastructure in ways that make people feel safer so that they don't worry that they're going to be the victims of the next mass casualty event when they when they leave their homes. T- tell me this.
1: What do liberals and conservatives need to change about how they approach this conversation on gun violence that you're asking us to have?
0: Yeah, I mean, part of it, I'm, I'm quite critical of my own side of my lib- the liberal side. I'm critical of my own background of, of public health in this book because I do say that you know, gun owners and even the NRA have been saying for decades that there's a a liberal bias uh, in, in what we do. And I do find that there are stereotypes of of gun owners. I, for people who are interested, you know, in the book, I write a lot about going back over the last 40 years of research. And there are stereotypes of kind of who would who would even carry a gun, who wouldn't who wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, crazy people, conservatives, all these kind of things. It's it's all back there starting in the 70s. And so there are stereotypes among liberals. And I also think that, you know, we do fall into the trap of what we, which I think is human nature. There's a horrible shooting. We advocate for. um. We advocate for better laws, but in a way, as I saw in the book, that kind of pushes conservatives into the, you know, the resistance point of rushing out to buy to buy more guns. Now we live in a zero-sum system, so that's just kind of the politics that we have right now. But I would say that in a more ideal world, we had safer community infrastructure. So we weren't having this ridiculous pro versus anti-debate. And then on the conservative side, I'm very open about that as well, that in a way conservatives have been pushed into really defending really ridiculous positions that very clearly are resulting not just in less safety, but they say they care about crime. One example I use is the guns in trunks bill in Tennessee. Many of these policies um, lead directly to more crime, which is what they say they care about. And so liberals have been pushed into a position of stereotyping conservatives. Conservatives have been pushed back into this position of not really you know they're supporting positions that seem to kind of work against their own aims. And really, the question I ask is, how can we, at some point, build structures so that we haven't polarized life and death, and and make sure that something like the Waffle House shooting doesn't doesn't happen again?
1: One more final question for you. You've been researching this for over a decade. In your book, you detail the testimony from Sherita Henderson, one of the vict- shooting victims at. The Waffle House in Antioch in 2018. It was very, very gripping. And you write at one section there was not people were wearing masks because it was the pandemic, but but people were crying through their masks, including yourself. Talk to me about in the process of writing this book, how that's really affected you and your humanity.
0: I, I you know, I get emotionally even thinking about that moment. I, I was just in the gallery of the courtroom. Sharita Henderson, a a victim uh, who survived uh, of the shooting and who is just the bravest person on the planet, um, gave incredible testimony about the shooting um, and then showed the jury really what bullets do to bodies and as a testament to her own bravery, showed what it takes to to survive. It's, you know, what I write is that maybe... In the old days, you would think about a bullet. We used to, to use a term, a bullet hole, like a bullet would poke a hole in a fence or something, but right now a bullet, it's like a ton of gravel is dropped on your leg and then it's driven over with a, with a tractor. It's it just, bullets create massive damages to, massive damage to bodies. And, and, and in a way, I just, I just wanted to tell that story of that bravery of the bravery of families whose children did not survive the Waffle House shooting, but have fought day and day and day and night and night and night to keep the memory alive, to make sure justice is alive. But it's it's also so sad that we live in a society where they have to do that, where, the, where their children are not thriving musicians or basketball players or cooks or models or all, all the victims of the shooting. And so I really found it, it to be you know, it's easy to study data and data sets, but that moment in the courtroom of what it meant, that bravery of what it meant to get up and show, show what we're doing to people's bodies. I, I just found it to be one of the more powerful moments of, of the entire process of research for me and one I felt very important that I, that I'd be able to tell. Dr.
1: Jonathan Metzel is a psychiatrist and professor at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of the book, What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. It will be available on January 30th. Dr. Metzel, thank you again. Thank you so much for being with us today. My honor, thank you so much. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with WPLN reporter Paige Flager about her reporting on gun violence here in Tennessee. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil a. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking about gun violence and the effects of the Waffle House shooting that happened on April 22nd, 2018. Quick warning for listeners, we will be discussing gun violence and some of the effects of gun violence in this conversation. Now, before the break, we talked with Dr. Jonathan Metzl about his research from his book, What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. In it, he details the Waffle House shooting, the trial, and the laws surrounding guns. WPLN criminal justice reporter Paige Flager has been covering gun violence and gun laws in Nashville and Tennessee. She's covered the Waffle House shooting as well, and she joins me now. Paige, so good to see you. Welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back.
1: Yes. Okay, so you were listening to this interview with Dr. Benzel. Yes. You covered the Waffle House shooting in your reporting. What comes to mind for you when you think about this tragedy?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about something that Dr. Metzl said about the family members who are left behind after these shootings and the ways that they have to grapple with their grief but also the ways that many of them feel empowered and moved to try and push for policy changes. So I wasn't here in Nashville when the Waffle House shooting happened, but I was here during some of the trials of Travis Reinking and his father. And I interviewed Cheryl Baker. Her daughter, D'Ebony Groves, was killed in the shooting. And I was thinking— while Dr. Metzl was talking about, about our interview and this thing that she said to me that was just so beautiful and really poignant. A real tragedy
1: will define who you are and what you're made of. Tragedy can carve a hole so deep in your soul, and it'll leave you lifeless and somehow some way you have to figure out a way to bounce back to rise up to face another day because if you don't you will die in grief.
2: And you know Cleo, I was just thinking like re-listening to her words how similar It feels to me to the Covenant moms and the ways that we've seen them just come out in force uh, and take this grief, this horrible grief of losing a child and attempt to make change so that other people don't have to experience what they've experienced.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, after Covenant, you look back at some of the shooting tragedies here in Tennessee and how laws did or did not change. What about Waffle House?
2: Yeah, Waffle House was a really big moment in Tennessee when it comes to gun laws. I think we really saw uh, people feeling, again, similar to Covenant, uh, feeling like they wanted change when it came to our gun laws. Um, and it's interesting because the Waffle House shooting, it did have impact in Illinois on Illinois' gun laws, mm. but it didn't have impact here in Tennessee. So after that shooting, um, Ryan King's father was convicted for giving the gun back to his son, um, and legislation was actually introduced here in Tennessee in regards to that, the third-party dispossession process, um, but it didn't pass. And the shooting also prompted an unsuccessful call for restrictions on military-grade assault weapons, which, again, did not make it through. So it, it was interesting to me. When, after the Covenant shooting happened to sort of look back and say, we've had other tragedies in our state and we've had other tragedies here in Nashville. And what was the response? And again, we see a, a call for change and an unsuccessful push to make that call for change into laws.
1: Is it fair to say that? In Illinois, after Waffle House, Illinois tightened up some of their gun laws and Tennessee loosened ours?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely fair to say. Wow.
1: Yes. Okay, so— The work that you're doing now, there's a pretty direct line between the Waffle House shooting and what you're working on right now currently, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So the through line here is gun dispossession. It's this question of how can we separate people who are barred from having a gun from their guns before they act uh, and commit violence? The issue comes up a lot, actually, here in Tennessee. In domestic violence cases where women can go to the court, to the police and say, hey, this person is armed. This person is dangerous. This person is threatening my life. And while we have laws on the books that say, you know, that person shouldn't have a gun, enforcement of that is actually not spelled out. So who goes and gets the gun? Who does the gun get turned over to? Mm -hmm. Who checks to make sure that any of that has actually happened? And in so many cases here in Tennessee, the answer is no one.
1: No one. It's written in the law and policy. Right. Well, how can anyone expect any action on gun dispossession, particularly when it's needed if there's no one to ensure that dispossession actually occurs?
2: Right. Yes, so it's sort of like we have a, a we have laws, and Tennessee actually, in the case of domestic violence, has some decent laws on the books uh, to try and separate dangerous people, domestic abusers, from weapons before a crime occurs. You know, it, it, domestic violence is one of those situations where there are a lot of precursors where we can say, like, hey. You know, this behavior is escalating. The violence is escalating. Strangulation is a big uh, Mm -hmm. precursor in domestic violence situations that a situation might become lethal. And the presence of a gun makes domestic violence particularly deadly. But... Because we don't have enforcement mechanisms that are spelled out about who the the gun goes to and how that process takes place and who is going to double check and make sure that it happened, we have these situations where uh, a person who never should have had a gun, was legally barred from having a gun, has access to one and commits a crime.
1: Okay, so you're working with ProPublica right now on a project about gun dispossession. Can you give us, without giving everything away, because I know you're working very, very diligently and hard on this, give us a little bit idea of what you all are focusing on for this project.
2: Yeah, so no one in Tennessee, and actually shockingly across the country, tracks to see how often someone who's legally barred from having a gun has one and commits a homicide with it. So we're looking at a set of more than 1,000 domestic violence gun homicides that occurred between 2001 and 2021, and we're comparing those cases to court records to find out which parts of the justice system are letting these guns slip through the cracks. If most people are barred because they have prior felonies that would have barred them from having access to a weapon, for example, then we have questions for the state's probation department, which has the most interaction with people who are released after having a felony conviction. If most people are barred because of orders of protection, which is a civil process, then we have questions for judges and magistrates. So we're we're trying to really examine here in Tennessee, in these cases of domestic violence, gun homicides, where where was there a hole? And Mm. to sort of illustrate the fact that when we're not enforcing these policies that we have on the books then people are dying because of it
1: you know in and going over dr metzel's book he mentioned a point that someone who is working towards having stronger gun laws brings up in regards to gun dispossession mm-hmm. he says the united states is the only country that looks at the person who is examines the person attempting to get a gun rather than the lethality of the gun itself mm. To me, that's kind of interesting. Would it be—would we be in better shape with the public safety and the public health concerns about gun violence and mass shooting? And in this case of what you're looking in, gun dispossession and domestic violence, would we be in better shape to look at not only the— I don't want to say mental acuity of the person, but the preparedness of a person to own a weapon and a firearm— and the lethality of a gun, it's very different owning a a, a simple revolver as compared to an AR-15.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think one of the things that I often hear in my work when I'm talking to folks who are very passionate about the Second Amendment, Second Amendment supporters, one of the things that they say is like, okay, if you have a determined abuser and they've decided that they're going to kill their loved one, then like, they'll find a way, right? It it doesn't matter if they have a gun or not, right? They'll they'll use a knife. They'll use a... But we find that research has shown that domestic violence shootings in particular oftentimes claim multiple victims. Um, There was a case that kind of got me started in a lot of this work um, of... This woman, Marie Varsos, here in in Nashville, yeah, where we've,
1: we've done several shows on it.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah where uh, her her estranged husband had a gun and shot and killed not only Marie but also Marie's mom, Debbie. Mm-hmm. And so we find that domestic violence shootings with a gun claim multiple victims, whereas if you're coming at a person with a knife, that's a very different equation. And so I think that there is a question to be asked about the efficacy of guns and the the speed of guns. Another thing that a lot of researchers in domestic violence say that's really interesting to me is that, like, if they didn't, if there wasn't a gun present during the heat of the moment, during an argument, that they might not have shot the person. That mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of premeditation. It was just someone was in the heat of a moment and there's a gun present and that amps up the lethality of these situations significantly. So I do think, yes, we can ask the question like, well, you know, if a person's determined to kill, they'll find a way, but a a gun is a weapon that can claim multiple lives really quickly. And I do think that that is part of the equation when we're having conversations about gun laws and gun restrictions is, is how deadly are some of these weapons. And I think that's why after Waffle House, you saw a question about rifles and weapons, uh, like what Travis Ranking used in that shooting.
1: What's, what's next for the ProPublica
2: project? Yeah, so um, we've compiled over 500 domestic violence gun homicides. So that's more than half of our total data set that we're aiming for. And we're gonna analyze all of these cases to see statewide how often these crimes are being committed with a gun that the person should not have had. And I'm particularly interested in focusing down um, on a more rural county here in Tennessee too to see how different cultural feelings about guns and the Second Amendment can impact gun dispossession and that process. Um, and the goal is that at the end of this project, it's it's going to be a year in May, at the end of the project, we'll have a sense of how often guns are slipping through the cracks. Um, and maybe that would make it easier for policymakers to to close some of those loopholes.
1: What have you found when you've gone out to rural areas? talk to them about guns, the Second Amendment, gun dispossession, and just public safety.
2: Well, it's interesting. The Covenant shooting, there's been a lot of polling about gun attitudes in Tennessee. And what we have found, what we have seen in that polling is, for the most part, Tennesseans are more interested in legislation that would separate dangerous people from their guns than our lawmakers are in passing him, and so there is this disconnect there's a pretty major disconnect between what Tennesseans are interested in when you're talking to a room full of responsible gun owners in McMinnville Tennessee um, which I have done at their Rotary Club you know those people are like yeah I don't want you know Johnny who we know beats his wife and has threatened to kill her and kill their kids we don't want him to have a gun Of course, we don't want him to have a gun. But at the state capitol, we have a a really conservative Republican supermajority. We have Democrats who are introducing gun bills, and then we have Republicans who are not passing them. So that's kind of the the political arena that we're looking at here.
1: So speaking of our lawmakers currently in session at the state capitol, has anything really caught your interest, anything that addressed some of these problems we've we've been discussing?
2: Yeah, so um, Democratic Representative Bob Freeman and Senator Heidi Campbell filed a third-party gun dispossession bill, which they said was heavily influenced by the reporting that we've been doing with ProPublica. As the law stands now, if someone's ordered to give up their gun, they can give that gun to a third party. So in the case of the Waffle House, Travis Ryan King gave the gun to his dad. That third party here in Tennessee does not have to be identified as our law stands now. Hmm. We're the only state that doesn't require any type of identification of that third party, period, in the entire country. So this bill would require the third party to identify themselves, to sign an affidavit with the court that says that they can legally have a gun, that they've received the gun from the person, and then they accept responsibility for it.
1: What are the bill's chances? Not good. Not good. Not good.
2: Not good. You know, we've again, like I said, Republican supermajority, Democratic lawmakers introducing the bill. And uh, yeah, it's very unlikely that it will become a law and it may get a hearing, but it also might not get a hearing.
1: Now, have you spoken to any Republican lawmakers in, the, in while you're working on this project?
2: Not yet. So it's interesting because so much of the work that I've been doing is based in the past. Right. I'm looking at these gun homicides between 2001 and 2021. uh, And obviously the laws that we have in this state are an important part of that. Um, But for the most part, it's like we're really trying to look at the system and to understand where there are holes and gaps in the system. That's what we're trying to do. And I think that it's really hard to even think about or look to our state capital for changes in that, in that world when we don't have an understanding. Mm. We don't have an understanding. We don't know how many people in our state are being killed with guns that the person was barred from having. So it's hard when you don't understand what's going wrong to look anywhere else for
1: a solution for
2: a solution.
1: Yeah, At, what what interests me is that you're you're saying that you know down the sample in McMinnville, mm-hmm. you have conservative voters mm-hmm. who, through polling, overwhelmingly want some sort of gun safety issues addressed and laws established here in the state. Mm-hmm. Yet we have a Republican supermajority. They're actual legislators who are refusing to take action. Doesn't really make sense to me as someone that could be an issue that gets these legislators removed from office. I'm just curious about the the political philosophy mm-hmm. the legislators are using in defending their non-action, let's say.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think I think I, I, I do spend a decent amount of time talking to some lobbying groups who lobby about guns here in Tennessee. And I think. From the conservative point of view, we can kind of look at two different things when we're looking at gun legislation that's being introduced. One thing that we can look at is our history here in Tennessee. Um, The Waffle House shooting, again, is a a good example. We had a tragedy. We had a person who should not have had access to a gun. We saw very little political will to tighten our gun laws. And in fact, in the years subsequently... We've loosened them. We've made it easier for more people to have access to guns and to carry them in more places. Um, So you can look at the history here in Tennessee. And again, like Dr. Metzel mentioned, right, Ryan King came here because he knew that Tennessee had loose gun laws. And, you know, by even by the time that he was in court, the laws had changed and loosened. Um, So you can look at history, right? You can look at Covenant, a tragedy and no change. Another thing that I think that a lot of conservative folks are going to be looking at when it comes to any gun bills that are being introduced is they're going to be measuring all of these gun bills against the Bruin decision, the Supreme Court case that Dr. Metzel referenced, which basically says like all gun laws that are introduced now need to be measured against like a historic analog, which means that we need to look back at what the laws and the norms were at the time that the Second Amendment was ratified when we're considering these gun bills. So mm-hmm. we have lobbying groups that are going to be looking and interpreting any law if it if it wouldn't have st- stood in back when the second amendment was ratified then they're they're going to be opposed to it because they're going to say it's a constitutional problem based on the supreme court case. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if that law addresses public safety. It doesn't matter if that law Addresses a problem that we've proven time and again results in people dying if it doesn't match up to the historic analog. So I think that's another factor that is only going to make it more difficult at the state capitol for for bills that are gun reforms that Tennesseans might be interested in. To, to make it through
1: and legal debates about the interpretation of the Second Amendment has been going on for a while, and it's part of the reason why we are where we are. Paige, real quick, before I let you go, when can we expect this project
2: with you and ProPublica? Yeah, so I think we're probably going to end up having two more stories that will come out between now and May. Um, And then also we'll be keeping an eye at the state capitol to see kind of what happens there. um, And we'll cover any of that as it's moving.
1: Paige Flager, criminal justice reporter for WPLN. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced and directed by Magnolia McKay. Our technical director and board operator is Liv Lombardi. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody and be good to each other.